0: We are not heroes, nor are we villains, neither kings nor magicians, but we can tell you their stories. We are the Lore Keepers, and we welcome you to Halloway. Welcome to Hallamay. You are listening to Lore Keepers, a world-building podcast we talk about eons of history, heroes and villains, and the legends they leave behind. I'm Frank.
1: And I'm Carter.
0: And whether you're interested in stories, looking for inspiration in your own world, and perhaps you want a piece of the action, we've got something for you. So this week, uh, as, as has been continuing in this series, we've returned to Arun again, and we're going to talk about Ancestral tide pools? Question mark? Or are they cultural tide pools? Or what's going on there? Um, but before we get into that, uh Carter, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing fairly well. So, Frank, I woke up this morning. You did? As I typically do. Wait. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Took I'm following. I'm following. Yep. It was 8 a.m.
0: Jesus. Okay.
1: I know. And as I'm doodling around on my phone, as I typically do in the morning, uh Suddenly, the room goes a-shaken. Really? There was a five-point-something like point something magnitude uh, earthquake in wow. North Carolina.
0: I didn't even this know month. North Carolina could get earthquakes. Is it on a fault apparently, line?
1: Apparently, yeah.
0: Wow. I mean, the mountains are pretty close. Huh. Oh, I guess, sure. You've got the, um, oh, what are they called? Not the Catskills. The, yeah, the Appalachian Mountains. Where are the Catskills?
1: They're the, they're the northern bit of the Appalachians.
0: Okay, gotcha.
1: The, the Appalachians are divided into sub-ranges.
0: And where like are the, the Ozarks and, and, in relationship to you? Are,
1: those, is Oz, are the Ozarks
0: in Alabama? Kentucky? Fried chicken.
1: I can't remember. Ozarks. Uh, Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma.
0: Okay, gotcha. It's like, a, I think, a chain of lakes. A very large chain of lakes.
1: Yeah, apparently it's a plateau or a chain of mountains.
0: Well, how are you doing? You doing okay? You uh Yeah,
1: it was spooky. I've never really felt that.
0: Yeah, I mean a 5.0 is not that uh significant cuz it is factors of 10, right? So a 6 is 10 times more intense than a 5 and then a 7 is 100 times more intense than a 5, etc. Yeah, it was
1: about 20 seconds and just you know everything shook for like you know like slightly for like 20 seconds.
0: Yeah. I think that like 7 and above is when things start to be actually become a problem, like 7.4, 7.5 or whatever. Oh yeah, like um
1: yeah, it was just spooky.
0: But yeah, still. I mean I I dude, that's surreal. That's kind of crazy. It's an omen.
1: Yep. A podcasting a podcast. omen.
0: <laughs> um, so Frank,
1: that was my morning. I then had a, a nice cup of cup of tea and some biscuits. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good. Uh I played a little bit more Breath of the Wild this weekend. Ooh. Uh we Oh what? We're we're currently looking for a drinks cabinet. Potentially something You
1: are buying a lot of drinks, Frank.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, thankfully I didn't buy any more this week. Um That's good. But uh yeah, no, I I uh, dived into aperitifs for the first time this Ooh. last week, uh, which was really That's fun. French. Yeah, Lille Blanc. Uh it is a kind of Sort of herbaceous wine. Um, it's got a very like herby uh, uh, taste. It's it's sweeter than in most wines that you'd normally drink. And I have two to three weeks to finish the bottle because anything that's that less sound. than anything that's less than twenty percent alcohol is, uh uh you know goes bad relatively quickly. So I've been making a lot of drinks with little milk um, because they don't sell bottles smaller, smaller than seven hundred and fifty mils yeah, so I mean, it's been good though. It's been really yeah. tasty. Lots of like martini type uh drinks where you you're mixing like gin or vodka, typically one of those two in with uh the Lillet Blanc. It replaces vermouth. In that situation, you might add some Cointreau or whatever. Cointreau, um,
1: Cointreau, Cointreau.
0: I made a whiskey yesterday, which is uh, oh. it's got three E's. I think um, it's uh, you use Irish whiskey, um, Lillet Blanc. Some Cointreau and I think honey syrup. No, I think it was a oh, it was a teaspoon of something. It might have been absinthe or something. But you mix all of that in with, uh, uh, and then you you garnish it with an orange peel. It's very good. Um,
1: that reminds me of a famous oh, uh, thoroughbred horse called uh, potu, potu or or Potatoes. Pot
0: eight, and then it was eight O's afterwards. P o
1: t o o o o eight times. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I like that very much. Was, this is very apparently he's very famous horse. Beat some of the greatest horses of all time, and he's <laughs> famous for his name.
0: Just like. I I know I know the context that you're saying with beat all the some of the greatest horses of all time, but without actually saying it, it makes me think like UFC champ fighting like in the octagon with two horses, just
1: (laughs) throwing (laughs) jabs, yeah,
0: throwing jabs. Um, oh, okay, and then there was one other thing I wanted to share, which was pretty great. Uh, we completed a four-year campaign. We did it. Uh, Uh, so. Not to there tears. There was there was some very. It was very uh, uh, monumental. I think for uh, my players, it was a big deal for me too, uh, because I don't know a lot of people who a have played the same game of D anD D for four years and b have actually finished it. Like how many campaigns are just ended by time constraints? Who got busy? Yeah, people yeah. get busy. I mean, how many campaigns have we been a part of that uh, ended that way? Uh, at least, let's see, is it two, three, four? At least four. Uh, no, five, if we're talking about both of the ones that Jerison, uh ran. I'm also including Abe's, and then okay. Threshold, and also uh, Child of Five, so that's five, and six with the one with uh, uh, Rachel. Um, plus a stillborn... Uh, campaign where we never actually got it off the ground with the whole like we were gonna play in that um, shared world and I just never got my shit together and created a character remember that there was like the there was a West Marchs campaign that people oh, created yeah. and we were on the discord server and you created a character for that and I never followed through because I was busy I with didn't the time. get
1: improved. yeah yeah
0: man damn but it's kind of it's kind of a significant event because we're we are merging the Meatspace group and the and and also Carter and um and my partner Rachel. And we're gonna be playing a game, one game with all five people. Um starting and so it's hopefully I, I optim I am optimistic about this. I believe it's going to be a new era in us uh, running RPGs. Um I'm very excited for it. So
1: yeah. No. After the podcast, Frank, we can talk about my idea for. Yes.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. I hopefully, hopefully, it's quick. not too. I didn't realize after until after a while that you were part of that group chat. I feel I felt kind of bad because I was like, "This is, I think, something that Carter would like to have," and I feel bad that I'm just like, we were talking about it in front of you, especially because there's mad feels
1: for some people. I'm an adult, I'm an adult, Frank. I feel like it, as a spectator, it was interesting.
0: Okay, well, don't I worry. Like I was a part we'll... of
1: something, even though I fucking wasn't. Well,
0: this this is the plan of all of these shorter arcs, is that we can do something over the course of, like, a season, and then, like, finish out and, and see how it ends, and then we all have resolution, and we move yes. on to the next one. And then there's always, you Every... know, a little bit, enough for us to start something new, potentially.
1: You know, it's not a sex marathon. Everyone gets to come a few times. <laughs> it's a shorter, but what? everyone gets satisfied. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. I mean...
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to say, like, I think that level 20 might be too long for any campaign. Like, m- maybe. I don't know, man. It's just four years. Four years of playing the same character straight. Like, imagine if Critical Role's first campaign was four years long. It wasn't. No, dude. I think it lasted two and some change. They played every well, week. I mean, there was was like, that on campaign. air? Because they played it. Oh, well, yeah. There. I see what you're saying. Um, but I think, like, if you count the number of sessions that they did, I, I'm guessing that before they started turning the cameras on, it was maybe probably 10 or less ca- uh, sessions. Maybe. So you, you have a good point, but they also didn't try and play every week. They played like once every month and a half or two months.
1: Yes, but they did like a marathon. True. They did like eight hours.
0: Well, maybe I. Matt Mercer is just a greater DM than I. And that's, I mean, that's, I don't think that's surprising to say. Well, no,
1: it's not simply that he's it's such a good DM. It's that each character brought so much to the table. Right. That is not easy to do mm-hmm.
0: for everybody, especially when the cameras are not on and you're just doing it for your friends and stuff like that instead of also getting paid to do it and have a master crew and everything. Um, the lesson here is don't compare yourself to a critical role all the time. Use it as a reference point for like some good ideas or whatever, but also recognize your own limitations. So anyways, that and also Good Sudoku, a new game by Zach Gage, who also did really bad chess. It's the first actually good Sudoku game for iOS. Just wanted to shout it out. You should check it out. It's very, very good. I really, really like it. Um, We're
1: not sponsored.
0: Takes a lot of the boring or uninteresting parts out of uh, Sudoku and gives you the option of automating them. Like you could just auto note literally everything. It's really good at, at displaying information. Like literally their whole vibe was, there is no actually good Sudoku app for the iPhone. Let's make the first one. Um, and I think they succeeded. It's so much better than any of the other ones on the store. So there you go.
1: All right. Want a shout out.
0: Yeah. So, um this week we are talking about well, we're kind of talking about tide pools. Um or kind of not. We it, it really depends on on how we want to create the structure here. There's there's uh, in our in our um, episode ideas list, uh we I think I had written down like uh tide pools in Orune. Um, this is in re- reference for those of you who might need a reminder or have never heard this before ancestral tide pools we used to call them racial tide pools before we rebranded ancestral tide pools are basically like people of the same uh uh genetic makeup or similar enough genetic makeup there is a general sense of well-being or lack of well-being that all those people
1: can feel collectively um So it's like Obi-Wan when he feels the uh, Alderaan get destroyed by the Death Star. it's like, oh, there's a great, a great deserving of the That's my best Obi-Wan.
0: Classic example of that. That's the one that we always refer back to. I don't know if I've ever said this on air. Uh, The original reason why I wanted to get that was because I wanted to try and capture the sense of racial prejudice that, and the way that it can have an impact on a people. So, like, there might be certain ways of feeling or modes of being that are universally understood to some people because of persecution that other people just might not be at all aware of. Like, literally, they live their lives without feeling those feelings ever. These days, I'm not necessarily sure how that seems like a kind of problematic I don't know the way that I had established that. So, like, I, I'm, I'm willing, I'm looking, I'm, I'm open to you know, kind of readdressing that and and litigating it and seeing what we can do with those ideas or how to do them healthily and um, productively. But ultimately, I do think that the idea of having sort of this, these these energies that are shared across all distances by people that can be tapped into magically, um, by the type of spellcaster known as a binder, um, who literally uses empathetic connection with other people to create their magical effects and stuff. I do think that that's still something that we should have, it's just how do we present it and stuff. And then obviously, more specifically, how does it show up in a rune?
1: I have some suggestions for how does it show up in a rune, Frank.
0: Okay, Um, yeah, I, I think there was only one other thing that I wanted to just do as a quick aside for sort of establishing this stuff in a rune if you would, uh, if you'd be okay with that. Sure. So the only other piece of context I wanted to uh, drop before we get started with this uh, as an idea or, or like, you know, sort of playing in the space is that um, something I don't think we've talked about in a little bit, uh, in rune, ancestry is not really something that is discussed, um, not for any like social implications or whatever, or well, uh, not, not because there's a taboo around talking about it, but because it's not as much of a concept there as it is elsewhere. There's a lot more genetic diaspora in the people of or- Um whether it be if you have elven blood or dwarven blood or human blood, gnomish, etc. Um, it's a lot more. What's what's the word? Mixed together, like uh, what's what's the word for that?
1: Um, heterogeneous. Yeah, it's a lot
0: more heterogeneous than uh, than places like Everest, where that stuff wars and and politics were heavily defined by who was considered a person, or uh, creating these sort of xenophobic boundaries around an elven hold or something. And O'Roon, you can't really afford to have those barriers. I mean, havens make those barriers up, and so you get different borders to people's experiences but it doesn't have to do with your genetic makeup. It has to do with the people that are literally around you. Um, And while those things are loosely related in a rune, it's a lot more likely that a person might just be born with um, pointy ears or like dark vision is just like a thing that people are, it's like twins. Dark vision is more like having twins. Some people are just born with dark vision and others aren't. So you can display like many different, you know, uh, ancestral features of a lot of different groups because it's all just that mixed together.
1: You took the words right out of my mouth, Frank. So let me jump off a little bit more. Okay. And say that I think that ancestral tide pools may look very, very different from in room than they look in Everest, and for exactly the reason Jews espoused. Mm-hmm. Ancestry in Everest is a big part of a person's identity.
0: Right. For better or for worse, it's absolutely isn't. something
1: people define themselves by, and
0: absolutely. others. Absolutely.
1: But in rune, it is not the case. A national or uh, cultural identity is far stronger in rune than in Everest, mm-hmm. though Everest does have it. Yeah. And this is where I think we see a kind of ancestral tidepool, which is really more cultural or ethnic, maybe, uh, tidepool comes about, rather than this ancestral one, because... That's just not how people define themselves. That's not a part of really anyone's identity in a room. Okay. So I would say that, like, each haven has its own kind of tide pool, which it shared Mm. with Mm. homes and homesteads nearby. Interesting. Okay,
0: I actually want to, because I was going to say, there's a second idea here, and I was thinking that Mm -hmm. they branch, but I'm actually kind of wondering if they're not mixed together. So genealogy is still important to the people of Orun, but not because of... It's actually, in some ways, I think it's more important than Everest. Like, some lords or ladies or kingdoms or other places where, like, uh, uh, wealth and things are inherited in Everest, genealogy is important to keep track of that stuff because it's like, who do you marry and stuff? And uh, uh, to be clear, not all of Everest is like that. There are still... Democratic monarchies um, where like they elect a king who then rules or queen who then rules for their like natural lifespan. Um, There's also, you know, straight up just democracies where people elect or at least republics where people elect people.
1: Democratic republics where they elect representatives, debate things,
0: etc. And dictatorships and fascism, you know, you know, fascism and and also communism. There's a lot of different versions of government in Everest. Um, And I think the same Similar is true in Arun, but all of it, of course, has a different tint to it. Uh, but the thing that I wanted to bring up was the fact that genealogy matters in, uh, in Arun because magic is an inherently spiritual thing. Um, and so a lot of... Oh, what do they call that? Um, shaman, not shamanism... It's like very common in traditional Japanese culture uh uh, uh what am i thinking of Shri- where you have shinto shinto yeah like shinto the shinto belief system that uh where your ancestors have a presence in like daily life and you'll have shrines to um your ancestors where you pray to them and stuff um a similar thing goes on in Arun, where they uh each person's uh each block irregularly is is can like breaks down into rooms that a family will share. And among those rooms is typically a great room or reception room where uh, they'll have a large table that everyone sits around. And during times of, during times of, uh, 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 what's it called? Like when they're eating dinner together or partaking in a meal, uh, the presence, the spiritual presence of their ancestors will arrive um, and like partake in that meal with them. Um, and so like I think that genealogy does matter but it's it's not about judging people by their bloodline so much as it is locating them like if you have a bloodline and you know who your ancestors are that matters more than who they are maybe
1: I think that I don't know how do we want to some, work with that I think there is some tracing of like I'm the descendant of this great hero of this hold,
0: Right, yeah. Like, knowing your so family that. lineage is, I think, probably one of the first things that children learn, because it quite literally might actually save their life. Like, being able to invoke... Your ancestors, while you're out in the field, a prayer to one of them—they might actually help redirect the attention of the corruption or a monster that's out there—and um, help save or protect you if you get stuck outside the walls or something. Yeah, give
1: you the strength to run the extra mile or whatever.
0: Right, exactly. I was actually thinking that, like, quite literally, one of the rites of passage um, for certain regions within Arun is to spend a night outside the walls as, like, a, a young person—you know, maybe in your teen years sort of the equivalent of like a bat mitzvah or or Yar or whatever, where it's this rite of passage where you call on your ancestors to provide and protect you. And, you know, it's probably terrifying. You're like hiding in the trunk of a tree uh, or something for the entire night, just hoping that that the monsters don't see you. But uh, uh, the reason why I think this is associated with uh, the tide pools is I think that there is definitely got to be a correlation there. And I'm thinking... Maybe that stuff is actually woven into the blocks sort of communal energies. Because I absolutely agree with you. I think that there is something about blocks where maybe they're tracking people's genealogy or something where there's like several different families.
1: We could do uh, a Banner a Saga thing. Have you played Banner Saga? Uh,
0: no, no,
1: I have not. Uh, so the basic premise of Banner Saga, I won't spoil it, is just... Um, it's like the... It's Ragnarok, right? Well, no, uh, they have a banner... <laughs> Okay. And the banner tells their history. Okay. And there's real-world things like this. I think in Aragon the um orc stand-ins had something similar. Oh,
0: what are they called? The Urgals?
1: Yeah, the Urgles. Had like it's so dumb. they had like weird <laughs> they had weird stitching on their tents or something that told mm-hmm. their ancestry. And so it's basically like there could be like a flag or a banner, or maybe it's the flagstones themselves that like Each has a depiction of a family or that was from long ago that can be traced or something like that.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the ideas I thought of was what if each person has a rune? So it it might be you take a rune from the giant language. Does Tolkien do this too?
1: Uh, Tolkien made a symbol from his names. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Oh, I have seen it. yes. Um, yeah, that's just his name. That's the first letters of all his names in a cool symbol. That is a cool symbol.
0: I do like that. Um, but no, I was thinking more... Um, I mean, I guess you could take that approach, but I was more thinking like sort of like a discovering of the naming of the self. What is your identity? Or a shaman in 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 your block uh, assigns you a name or or discovers, helps you discover your name through speaking to your ancestors or something. And maybe this is given, uh, it might be something that is actually engraved on a stone after their death. You know, like maybe you're cremated and then at, when your ashes are spread, the, like the name is sort of revealed through a magical ritual or something. And I was thinking you had these ancestral stones where their name is written like a rune on it and that becomes a protective sigil that people either pave into their courtyards of the blocks or they have in the, the, their homes or something like that. But I think that each, I was imagining each rune being unique and sort of being a modification of one or multiple giant runes that are sort of mushed together or done in cons- uh, consecutive. I don't think it's like a full word. Yeah. But its it might be more like a Chinese character, you know? So but it's like, like a personalized one.
1: Are you thinking we start with Chad and then Chadson, Chad, Chadson, Chad, Chad, Chadson, 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 Chadson Chad, son of Chad, son of Chad, Chadson?
0: What are you talking about? Like
1: that? Oh, well, you know, like um, uh, oh, you're your
0: saying name? like the rune becomes more complicated because it references your genealogy. Yes,
1: something that's like that.
0: an interesting idea.
1: Or just think of it like you know John Johnson, mm-hmm. John Johnson, right? It's just, that's just something that happens as people Ooh. get names that are sons of people.
0: What if we do a thing where there's some leftover uh, a dwarven tradition here from like vestiges of dwarven tradition where. So dwarf, uh, dwarves, t- a common naming convention among at least mountain and hill dwarves. Is it both? Or it might just be mountain dwarves uh, where they have beer or sid, which means uh, like B-I-R or S-I-D. So if you have like Tas- uh, Tasman Sid Or, it means Tasman uh, uh, Daughter of or. Or you'll have like morthron Beer Herzl, which means Morthron son of Herzl. And what that is, is it will literally be in reference not to their parent, but to a matron or patron of like a uh, cultural significance where, you know, the dwarves are keeping track of the history of their people. Um, and this was a big hero in our family. And so maybe it's that, that, that name among the heroes of your family, you're like, oh, they were so much like this ancestor of ours um, and sort of like walked in their steps. And so we took that rune and we combined it or, or sort of. Uh, elaborated on it with the identity of this person and saying sort of like it is it is their essence or their nature you know their spirit is living on in them
1: yeah and we can expect that a lot of the haven to share similar names because they have shared similar ancestries of right. heroes and stuff like this and so the, the the names of one haven will be you know more or less unique mm-hmm but they'll all have a similar vein, more or less. It might be two different veins, you know, where you can just, like, specific, specify, like, oh, these are, the like, the Hans, and these mm-hmm. are the, you know, whatever.
0: Well, and that's, I think, what I was kind of coming down to, is, is, like, does that mean that, do you think, then, that a Haven, a Haven might not be the best example because I think they're more, a little bit more spread out, but I'm, like, thinking, is it that a Hold... Started out as just one family, and so everybody in that hold, it's not uncommon to have a hold where literally everybody has the same base rune or similar, like, same set of base runes of like five or six heroes, being like the equivalent of everybody has the same last name because they all come from the same genealogy. Or do you think it might be two or three families that forged out, and there's this belief that the less number of base runes, of foundational runes, the stronger your people are?
1: Maybe. I think it's more likely several families in one because you know holds are still not as small as homesteads.
0: Right. And you still need at least, you know, probably close to a hundred people. Yeah, definitely a genetic diversity. And B close to a hundred people probably to start a new hold if you, yeah. you know, want it's to a create lot of work one. To be done. Oh Jesus, yeah. Um so I think I think yes, I think that that's a really good foundation, especially because there's some really interesting things we can play with about the trade-off between having just one set of foundational runes, and that might mean that the people there, their magic excels in certain ways, this actually could also be connected to the idea that um, certain, oh, what are they called? The uh, wild gods. Certain wild gods have a much greater presence in some places over others. So I think we've talked about this before, but like, one haven and its, like, children holds, its daughter holds, might uh, all be in a region where the presence of, we'll say, the owl is very strongly felt. Uh, And so all of those people um, sort of uh, esteem and bow before the owl and all of the owl's um, uh, company, the, uh, what do they call a something of owls? A, A council of owls?
1: I don't
0: know. I don't remember what it's called. Uh a group of a vowels. Murder. <laughs> the murder of owls. Uh whatever the grouping of owls is. Like like you know, like leaning into them and and patroning them and or or you know worshiping them. Uh and and then there might be other situations where in a larger group or a place that straddles multiple s- smaller pockets of different esteemed Uh, creatures that they look up to it might be that you have a wider branding or or branching of families where you have seven or eight genetically unrelated families that mix with uh, each other and so you have dozens maybe even like 50 different foundational runes because of all the different you know heroes of these groups yeah, basically, basically something like that. And I'm I'm curious to see what that does with magic, though. I mean, because I think we've already just by even having this conversation are agreeing that ancestral tide pools just work differently on a rune on a straight up magical level, where it's yes they're not necessarily feeling the effects of all the dwarves in the world or all the elves in the world or whatever because uh, they don't have a strong enough genetic. Uh, a through-line to that group to necessarily connect to that blood's, like, sympathies, you know?
1: Yeah, and I think it's also simply that, uh, m- mentally speaking, it's not a part of their identity. Hmm. It's not just a genetic thing. I actually, you know what, I like that. I like that maybe that will yeah, Let's I'll, get away from genetic purity.
0: I'm totally down with that. I think that what gives the, quote-unquote, genetic purity power in everest it's a misnomer. they might think that it's genetic purity, but it's I think it's more that the fact that they believe that it's genetic purity that gives it power that gives it power.
1: Does that make sense yeah it's their identity as pure blood quote unquote mm-hmm. elves that right. makes them share other elves' pain that identifies elves, rather than
0: that's a great example of a solid retcon right there because right. it's it's that is It doesn't change anything about the imperious way that the elves or even like the dwarves hyper traditional approach, you know, where they can be uh, uh, xenophobic just like anybody else. It's because they believe that having pure bloodlines is what makes them powerful. Whereas in truth, it's really just belief in something that makes it powerful. As much yes. as a recollection or a god or whatever it is that you're believing in, that's the thing that gives it power. And when you have a lot of people all believing that simultaneously, that's what makes it so that the creature even like comes alive and becomes a uh, whatever they call those things. The thing that comes alive with your faith. I don't know. I don't remember what they call.
1: A zeitgeist.
0: Well, zeitgeist is a word. A tulpa. I'm thinking of a tulpa.
1: Me culpa?
0: Talpa mia Uh Okay, so we've established some really interesting ideas. Let's, we should start to kind of like uh, 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 sew them together here. The, the different holds, let's just focus on one hold and say, okay, so let's say that there's four families there. Okay. That might give you about 12 to 15 foundational runes that you'll see show up in different uh different names really yeah well you might have two or three heroes per
1: family but they said so there are four families
0: yeah well you might have more than three
1: okay so three to four
0: yeah you could have three to four you know yeah <laughs> sure yeah two to four you we'll say. two to
1: three and then you're like 12 to 15 i'm like- Okay,
0: okay. But well, what? but but actually, because this is actually one of the things I want to say. Four, let's say we have four foundational families, but what if there are some people who started a homestead and uh, try to find refuge in a hold uh, because the homestead get, falls apart? Um, first of all, I don't think it's an easy transition to make. I think that the people would probably be afraid of them um, and mistrusting of them. Um, I think it's not unheard of, though, for it to happen. I think that they have a really hard time Absolutely. in that hold, um, make, making a life for themselves there. And it might be multiple generations before those people are considered as much a part of the hold as anyone else. And honestly, even then, I think it, I, I could totally see it being like, they will forever be seen as the other. You know, yes. because they didn't they weren't there at the start of the hold. And so it's almost like this idea of being grafted in to whatever the sort of family trees are there. I mean, maybe one of the only ways of getting rid of that is to, you know, marry into families or, or you know, to become unioned with other people in a way where you lose your own you give up, you relinquish that family history to take on somebody else's that's seen as more positive.
1: Yep. And I think sometimes you have, you know, whoever gives names, you know, maybe names aren't given, but they're chosen by the children. And maybe the children will Hmm. choose the heroes from other families or heroes from further down the line.
0: Hmm. Okay. I like this. I think technically children get to choose their own names, but I think it's really common for everyone else in the family to try and push the kids towards naming themselves a certain way parents might actually fight over it or you might have an elder who's who's like oh you know you're totally in the spirit of this person you're you this this person's spirit is walking with you and you know the the parents are like that's not true at all or whatever but they're like trying to play favorites or something
1: you, know, you are truly bjorn bjornson mhm you must be another bjorn like our father bjorn bjornson bjorn <laughs>
0: Okay, so I think we've established some really interesting cultural ideas here and some heritage ideas and how how the cultures of O'Roon deal with that. What do you think on a on the pragmatic side of this? We could say game mechanics perhaps, but not even necessarily that, but just like how does this stuff change people's actual lives in terms of magical presence or do they get power to access to power that they wouldn't otherwise have? Or do the spirits, the heroic spirits, actually show up with them or
1: something? I think that the heroic spirits take different forms depending on you know, the heroes in their um, ancestry. Mm-hmm. Whatever shamanistic magic looks like, it might look slightly different. But I don't know how much we want to tie this to mechanics. Because it's just going to be so different for everyone.
0: I think, yeah, I don't know if we necessarily need to apply it to mechanics, but I do think, as with most things like this in Halume, it's never just something that people say. It's actually, it has some strength, which is why it was important for us to retcon how ancestral tide pools are working in Everest, is because it actually does give people power. But the source of the power, like we were saying, doesn't come from the blood itself. It comes from people's belief that the blood is the strengthening thing yes so what does i mean does it mean that for instance that family that found refuge that fifth family uh that found refuge from and they were able to successfully get in from having a homestead come in from the cold do they have less magical power than other people because the thing is, is they should also be able to trace their ancestry all up until the point of the forgetting, which I think is the ultimate sort of like bedrock of where people trace their ancestry to if they can.
1: I wouldn't say they have less magical power, maybe. I'm not sure. Because, of, because otherwise you would just, you know, kind of make a claim where it's like the holds have the most magical power because they have more people believing in some sense.
0: hmm. Right. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Uh, I think, yeah, I don't think that it's that they have more or less power. I wonder if it's like, how does that power manifest? Our, we, we've been talking about it kind of ambiguously, but the most concrete example we've been using is like ancestors walking with their children, right? That's not the only form of this magic as it shows up in O'Roon because there is spiritual magic that can be drawn from the land or from creatures, but when we're talking specifically about ancestral relationships, it is something that um, I think the only example we've created so far is like, yeah, manifesting the spirit of this hero. So maybe it's something where it augments your own abilities or gives you knowledge you wouldn't otherwise have. Maybe it's quite literally like the shadowy outline or ghost of somebody else like walks with you
1: do you, do you know the Echo Knight, Matt Mercer's subclass?
0: No. I mean, I remember
1: him talking about it, but I don't know what it does. Basically, you can make an Echo of yourself that can cast spells or fight. Oh, cool. And take damage. And when it takes, you know, a certain amount of damage, it disappears. Is this you from, can, like, Guide to Wildemount? Yes, I think so. Okay, I haven't gotten that book yet. Right, and you can, like, switch places with it. That's, That's pretty, pretty cool. cool. And, like, that could be an Ancestor. Mm-hmm. Like that could yeah. be the spirit of an ancestor that you summon to fight mm-hmm. with you. And okay. Then the the bat the, the, the barbarian is the ancestral fighter, barbarian. They uses mm-hmm. the like strength of their ancestors to defend their allies.
0: Right. The monks also have a version of this, although that has to do with your spectral self. It's like an idealized version of who you might actually be. So you can have like a spectral knight or maybe, the, the you know, like eight arms or something like that and increases the m- yeah, amount and of really damage Yeah, and that could be flavored to
1: be ancestral.
0: Right, exactly. Um, I think... So I think that that's one manifestation of it. Uh, here's where I was trying to go with that. Um, with the new family, I kind of wonder... Would they have more limited options with like what they can call upon their their heroes to do, maybe, so they might have to be more ingenious with them, like the way that they use uh their ancestral magic might be they have to be more clever about it because they have less to pull from but the, the thing is is like this is a great equalizer, everybody has two parents and four grandparents and eight great grandparents, et cetera, right. because that's literally just how people are I mean that's unless you're Jesus works. or have and obviously with I mean, exception. Jesus
1: has a lot too.
0: Right. I mean with exception I think technically the there might be ways where people can have three parents or whatever especially in Halloween, I think that is actually a thing. Jeez. But my, my my point is just this that like if there are heroes the knowledge of those heroes which would be like the paramount thing to pass on to people wouldn't be something that a a, a homestead wouldn't do. Like, it's not like homesteaders are not going to teach their children about the heroes of their family. So that doesn't mean that the family's magic is weaker than anybody in the homestead. So what's the difference there? Is there a difference? I think there is. I think there might be. I think the difference is got something to do with how the families that are already in the hold are mixed in. We, we kind of talked before about sort of the aggregation of these different families, and, and there's some sort of like codifying of that power in a magical way that's happening in the hold. And I think maybe it's something that the shamans are doing that gives people the ability to literally mix those different ancestral magics together. So I don't know if this is it, but maybe you can draw on the ancestral magics of like a different parentage or something, where it's like, it's not my family, but it's another family within this hold. One of their heroes shows up. I'm kind of wondering if there's like, you can cross over and draw from somebody else. And so maybe what happens is, is, since that all might need to be done at once, then the people of the homestead are cut off from that connection. Yes. Which is a great way of manifesting sort of the feeling of being othered by your community. And maybe it's only after time and after proving themselves that their ancestry is allowed to be grafted in. And that's sort of the ultimate sign of acceptance by a hold. Although there are still, I think, will permanently be this sort of like parent, parental child relationship between the two because it's like we were here before you and we allowed you to be joined with us, not that we all decided to join together.
1: So here's a question for you, Frank. This is how I think, think of it. let's see if you think of it like this. When you're a, a hold in the homestead, family is very important. Mm hmm. But I think when you get up to Haven, there's this idea, uh, not maybe in every Haven, but I think in a lot of Havens, where the Haven comes first, you are a citizen of the Haven, and then you are a son of your father, or something like this. Hmm. Where it's like, Mm -hmm. you are of the Haven, and you can get on the Haven's heroes, and then you have access to the Haven, to not the Haven's heroes, but the familial hero. So maybe
0: there's something that shamans can do in a Haven, and this is what distinguishes them from the, the holds where there's a way of converting that magic to being something that is connected to the haven itself and not to the family. So the families give up, in a way, their heritage, their ancestral heroes or whatever,
1: to be part of sort of the same pool, but it's associated with the haven instead. Well, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say, Frank, is this not, some, maybe not something the shamans do necessarily. It, it's a, I think it's a question of identity, Okay. The but again, how do we translate that of the haven?
0: How That's do we translate that into like the actual in-game, not maybe not even in-game, but just in-world implications of that? In the same way that like the shamans are mixing the different heritages together, what is the equivalent of doing that, but for a haven? Because like well, you I- could still mix those families together. But it's but then that doesn't give people the sense of allegiance to their haven, which I agree with you. We should be like you know encouraging that as a or narrative think, element.
1: There may be a rune that represents the haven. Interesting. That is woven into everything, is the idea. Where you're like if someone asks your name, you're like, "I am," you know, um, Eric, son of Ericsson of Haven,
0: or. Eric of this haven, son of Eric, or son, yeah, or whatever. something like that. Um, okay, so then, then let me ask this. How do things, how does it change things then if a homesteading group, the closest place that is a place of safety after their uh, place gets overrun, is a haven instead of a home, or a hold? Like, h- how does that change things when that family shows up with their ancestry?
1: I imagine there's some weird nationalist shit with like, you got to, you got to sign your cloth with the Haven, you know, a rune, Haven Rune before you are in the Haven. You got to drink the Kool-Aid.
0: Yes, and I agree, but maybe this is a better way of trying to articulate the question I'm asking here. What does it benefit the Haven to do this? Why Why is it beneficial for the Haven instead of being defined by heritages, which a hold could easily say, oh, we have this hold emblem, this hold sigil, this hold rune, whatever you want to call it, and that's the thing by which everybody identifies. But they choose not to do it, whereas a Haven does. Why do they do it and not the, the
1: holds? Because the Haven is more what does unified. It... And it's it's more about making certain that everyone is unified in a common goal and not arguing amongst each other.
0: And I get that, Carter. I agree. I understand what you're saying. Yes. My, what I'm trying to say is, is what are the mechanical implications of this? How does this show up magically? How does this change things? Like, what is it that the shamans or, or whoever, the people of, of that hold, how are they benefiting from that fact? Because, like, this stuff needs to have an origin. I mean, yes, again, it could just be a political move, but I think nothing in, in Halume following the way that we world build is necessarily just a political move or just a, you know, oftentimes there's magical implications that's the reason for why somebody did something like that. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to get at. Does that make sense? I mean, it
1: ma- magically speaking, it ties everyone together.
0: What gives you, and what advantage do you gain as a result of being tied together that the holds don't have from the way they're tied together?
1: I would say that it's just it's not necessarily a difference in advantage, but it's simply that it's because there's so many more people, so many more different families, that if they were tied together in the same way holds are, they wouldn't mm. be tied together because there's too many families. Okay. With that are too disparate. There needs okay. to be a more more, you know, concrete unifying element. So when you're looking at like the catalogue
0: of all the heroes of a haven. Maybe, maybe it is too broad and there's too many people to try to learn about that you couldn't necessarily invoke their spirits as needed or something. Maybe, okay, here's maybe the thought. Havens have runes, like you're saying, and the hero's runes get grafted onto the haven rune. The Haven Rune acts as some sort of proxy that allows people to not necessarily... Even if they don't know the stories of... Because maybe, at least in this situation, I'm imagining that stories are what's giving... Knowledge of the stories is what's giving you access to calling upon the spirits of those ancestors. So maybe it's... You don't necessarily need to know their full lifespan and have studied it super, super well to call on that haven hero you just need to know some basic information about them but the fact that it's tied to the haven is what gives you the power because you're also tied to the haven yes okay okay and that totally makes sense to me like again like i think i understand what you're saying i uh, ultimately
1: you might have scale.
0: 35 families in in one haven you might even have more than that like there could be thousands of people in a haven That is far too many... That could be over a hundred and something different heroes. And there's no way that a person can keep track of all of those... Specific... and, And like knowing their full stories. So maybe you either focus on a few... Or... When you do call upon them... They're of like a lower level of power. Or like they have less that they're capable of doing. But because... The Haven Rune is there acting as like... Almost like an intercession... It allows you to access more power than you would be able to otherwise. Okay, cool. That is a really cool system. I like that a lot. I was gonna say, I think sort of. Uh, I think we should probably do one in ones. I think yes. it's that time. Um, do you? I I have a one. I don't know if you do.
1: Um. Let's go with yours first.
0: Okay. So my thought was. Uh, just kind of to cap all this off, because this is is a pretty cool fucking idea. I think there's an aggregate power base. Like, I think there's a measurable amount of presence or absence of magical energy. And uh, I think that people, especially one of the responsibilities of shamans of the different blocks is to monitor how much is being drawn from to make sure that no single group or individual is drawing too much. I I don't necessarily know how that, is being replenished. Maybe it's literally through the telling of stories. Maybe people go out, have stories to tell from out in, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the outside uh, world of the hold and then return. And by sharing those stories and sharing the, the stuff, it like fills this, you know, hypothetical meter back up, which then gives the hold in its entirety more power to draw from, It's like nourishing the spirits of the ancestors or something. And so I could totally see some people getting in trouble for drawing too much or like beyond kind of their quota. I don't know if it's like that official. I think in Havens, it might actually be straight up that official where it's almost like you would have the equivalent of like clock towers. You have some sort of plinth or something that glows a certain brightness based on how much power the entire, uh, like magical power, the entire uh, uh, hold can use to draw on. And maybe they even carry with them little objects when they're out on the hunt that tell them how much power they have so that they're not overusing from, like, the aggregate pool. Do you what think do you think that, about all that?
1: I think it's interesting, but do you think that every single person in the hold or the haven can access that magical power? <sighs>
0: I don't think so. Um, I don't know how we monitor that. I think it might have to do straight up with your own magical abilities. I think it's a way of sort of meeting in the middle the fact that most people lack, you know, it's that two and a half percent. Most people can't actually cast spells on their own. It's sort of like um, maybe the Eldar, you know, don't they have kind of have like a uh, like a communal thing? They definitely hold the souls of the dead like on their chests or something, not, right? So,
1: so that soul, that gem, that soul gem on them is meant to take their soul when they die. Oh, so it doesn't okay, go gotcha. splash.
0: And that gets returned to to uh, the their,
1: Infinity Circuit. The
0: their, their the Infinity Circuit, which is so cool. Yes. Yeah, I don't think it necessarily. I, I'm not going to say it gives everybody the ability to do it. I think there's maybe a sort of a meritocratic thing going on where, like, you earn greater access. By doing I, things for your hold, especially because I'm guessing these types of enchantment beads or whatever that people carry with them act as, maybe they act as, like, tune a tuning. Like, you can tune into free, the frequency of these different heroes. And so if you do things that are seen as, like, meritus acts by your haven, then the shamans will award you after years of, like, you know, service you know, different hunters, even if you're not an outrider, you might gain access to a couple different of heroes' powers. And then some people are just born where they can just reach in and grab it. You know, those are the, like the magically prowessed people. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm thinking.
1: And I, I do think that they're, they're the true like heroes, modern heroes or contemporary heroes of the Haven that are gifted maybe the, the sword and the armor of the previous hero like incredibly powerful access well
0: i mean then we can create like there's a whole second thing i think this might have to be its own episode but what do we do with living legends like people who are forging their own story as they go and like there becomes this like zool of everyone in the hold is enraptured by their power and they might they're probably drawing on their own ancestries and they're of great ability to do so but also they're doing valiant efforts on their own
1: yeah and I, I kind of want to push a little bit back against this idea of like a reservoir. I think that there's so much ancestor worship and so much, you know valorization of the heroes that it's, that it's just such a huge reservoir that, hmm. it, that it's not the question of, do we drain it? It's the question of how do we access more of it? Mm,
0: i think maybe it's, it's like access. it's more like having a limited like neck to the bottle kind of situation yeah, exactly. where like you can't access that you' can only much.
1: cup so much water in your hands
0: okay I'll say maybe how how would you feel about this that in some areas of rune the way that the corruption interacts with this or it's its presence might hang like a cloud and it can drain people's uh reservoirs or something like that maybe um Uh, And they're just not able to store enough up to do much with it. I just like the idea of creating some stories where people are like desperately clinging onto and rationing out magical power among a community. And that could create so much conflict and tension for like some people uh, abusing it. Or, you know, you drew on your ancestor and that means that this other person died because they couldn't draw on theirs. But I do think like, yes, that might be more of an isolated example when in its sort of natural state, the ancestral power of these people I mean really maybe what it's doing is it's just giving them access to doors into aluvic power. Like it might just yeah. be the magic of alluvium and because their ancestral spirits are kind of a half step somewhere between those two or might be sort of residing within alluvium or in sort of the um the natureistic spirits of alluvium they can draw through that into alluvic power.
1: Yeah, I, I I less like the idea of quantifying magical power. I like okay. it to be mysterious.
0: Okay, yeah, I'm down with that. I think I think that it. I would say we don't have to quantify it as the default. I think I do like the idea of having it be something that people are rationing, but it's just a more rare circumstance, and it's typically like more dire, s- like yeah, situations. Even, like I think with, even in, in that circumstance, corruption.
1: I think even in that circumstance, it shouldn't be like easy to quantify. It should be like we don't know how much is left, so we have to use it only as a last resort.
0: Right, of. and that's kind of more what I'm saying is is like, it's uh, not like
1: well, it's twelve to you know, it's, it's a... 10%, we need to use only, you know, two times.
0: Yeah, it's it's oh, less yeah. that and more like we don't... W- maybe it gets refilled a la success, like if people have certain yeah. successes or something. I, I'm not, not to say quantifying, but I'm saying in a certain situation, like the co- presence of the corruption is like overactive as a way of dampening it, and so yes. it doesn't maybe stay around for long, so you need these flares of power of, like, people bringing new stories in or whatever that source of, like, connecting back is so that people have their connection to their um, ancestors fresh in their minds. And if that starts to fade, then they lose access again. And so, yeah, anyways, whatever. We could, we could go I round and round and research.
1: round about this. Um, but I, I, yeah. Yeah, what's yours? This will be quick. I think that people, especially talented people, with a lot of access to their ancestors, either through having an, a way to reach them through like a, a like you're saying, a tuning fork, mm-hmm. i.e. an artifact from the ancestors themselves, mm-hmm. or having just a great store of their own power, maybe. Mm-hmm. They can uh, use very limitedly their ancestors' quirk. bringing it back to quirks. Hmm. And if they have the same or very similar quirk to their ancestor, an even tighter connection, they can enhance their own for a time.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. Like if there's some sort of elemental or, or sort of tag, lo- tag word crossover between what each person, like their ancestor and what the living person could do, they can draw on that power. That's really cool. I like that. Boom. I like that a lot.
1: Cool. Uh, well, um, I think that pretty much covers us, right? Yep. Yeah, we hope you've enjoyed this exploration to the lands of rune and a little bit of Everest. If you enjoyed listening, you can give the Lord Keepers a five star rating on iTunes or other plat- podcast listening platforms. Also, tell others about us. It's still a pandemic out there. I'm. Sh- I don't mm-hmm. know if you noticed, Frank. At least in America it is. But in other more civilized countries like New Zealand, you can go out and have a party oh. and, and tell yeah. your friends about us. We, lo- we I... love having more listeners. embrace Hear the good word of our Lord and Savior Frank <laughs> and his excellent podcast. Oh my God.
0: I it kind of it is it makes me heart sick. There is a podcast I listen to that's from two Kiwis who just talk about life and like you know like they they watch movies together and so it was literally just the podcast was them recording shortly after they had uh, watched a movie together uh, and they were just hanging out on the couch next to each other and shit. I was just like fucking hate this i hate listening to this this is their this is their now and they're just like yes just whatever you know like normal as always because of course this is what would happen like you know it's not a yeah i hate 2020 Thank okay you. well just because it's the end of the show doesn't mean the world building stops check out our subreddit the purpose place to find resources ask questions and make your mark part of the discourse you can also reach us at lore keepers on twitter or emails at lore at at gmail.com
1: Finally, thanks to Josh Silker for his composition of "Land of Heroes," which might return. The work uh, we state. hope. I got a text in today.: And, and thanks, thanks to you all to you for listening. Frank Until this next is time.: my
0: Until next time, don't forget there are always more ancestors to draw upon. Carters to steal their lines from. Uh, Frank's to be deified.: And that's it, folks. Does that mean that you're my prophet?: Yes. I hate this. Let's stop. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone.